This is a RomiCast. This podcast was recorded in October of 2021. get tired of being Beatles. I hear you. Uh, when I play the drums, then I play a guitar, and I too play a guitar. Oh, is he dead? Sit you down, Father. Rescue. Take 12. Tell me what goes in the gun. Very excited. Can we just have a little less guitar in here? Oh, that's all right. Oh, no way. Just take three. Go. Mr. John finally got just after that, and we were both of the do what you want to do, do what you want to do. If you think it was good, keep it, if you don't, scrap it. Yeah, it's not bad, that one. Keep that one. Mark it fab. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanuk. We will be taking a stroll along the cast iron shore and peeling off the layers of the glass onion with another great musical guest discussing their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. Uh, the podcast website is romicast.com. That's R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T, romicast.com. And if you head there, you can find each and every episode that we've done so far in the series. This is the eighth episode of series two. You can find the first seven episodes of this series, as well as all 15 episodes of Series 1 there at the website. And also, if you see fit, could you please make a donation to support keeping the show commercial-free? Any donation is much appreciated, and your donation goes towards offsetting the costs of me doing the show, hosting, advertising, some equipment. It is a labor of love for me, but still, if you enjoy the show... I'd really appreciate it if you would consider a donation to support the show. Maybe just as little as a couple of dollars per episode. It's not that much. Just click on the donate button on the website if you'd like to donate. Also, if you don't already, please do subscribe to the show via your favorite podcast provider. And if you could, leave a positive review or rating. That doesn't cost you anything, just a little bit of your time. And it it does help for sure. So thanks for that. You can follow the podcast on Twitter or Instagram at the handle Romanuk Paul. That is Romanuk Paul. My name switched backwards. Uh, this is also the best way to get in touch or comment on any of the episodes. I usually do get back to people who interact on social, particularly on Twitter or Instagram. Now, coming up today, we have part two of our look at the Beatles 1994 album, The Beatles Live at the BBC. And my guest once again is Canadian songwriter and musician. Musician Alan Piggins. Alan was the lead singer, just to refresh your memory, and the lead guitar player in a much loved grunge band from the early 90s on the Canadian music scene called the Morgan Fields. They released three solid records uh, Scribblehead, Thrash, Waltz, and Joy was the third one. The band kind of faded out, as Alan talked about in the last episode, and he found work as a recording engineer and eventually started releasing some very good solo material. 
As this is being recorded, he is set to release his fourth solo record, Impermanence. And you can find out information about that album, Alan, and his career at his website, alanpiggins.com. And just note that Alan is spelled A-L-U-N. So it's alanpiggins.com. Look for him on Bandcamp, where you can listen to and purchase all of his solo work, much of which, as I said in the last episode, does bear a, a, a definite Beatles influence. If you haven't already listened to part one of our look at the Beatles live at the BBC, go back and do that. Listen to them in the right order. It'll help. Uh, Alan tells a couple of great stories from his touring days in that episode. And I, I go into much more detail in the last episode about the background of the album, but I'll just give you sort of a, a quick synopsis here before we jump into uh, to the next seven cuts. So between March of 1962 and May of 1965, the Beatles played 52 known BBC radio programs and they gave performances of 88 different songs. The first, recorded on March 7th, 1962, was for a show called Teenager's Turn, Here We Go, which which sounds very uh, early 1960s BBC. Uh, They played three songs on that show, Dream Baby, How Long Must I Dream, Memphis, Tennessee, and Please, Mr. Postman, all three covers. This was so long ago that Pete Best was still in the group. It was a full seven months before Love Me Do was released as their first single. So they were on the BBC before they were who they became. Uh, The show was recorded at the Manchester Playhouse, and it was said to be the first time that the Beatles wore suits on stage. And then Shuttle Ahead, the last BBC show that they did, was recorded on May the 26th, 1965, by which time Time, they were global superstars, and it was for a special called The Beatles Invite You on a Ticket to Ride. So sifting through all of these tracks in the archive uh, was the Beatles producer, George Martin, and he selected the tracks for the album, and his selections included 30 of the 36 songs in the BBC vaults that the group had never recorded for EMI. The Beatles Live at the BBC was released in the UK on November the 30th, 1994, and in the USA and Canada on December the 6th, so about a week later. It was the first Beatles release to contain unreleased material since the Beatles at the Hollywood Bowl, which was released in 1977. Interesting, right? I mean, we're talking 1994, but the album topped the UK charts. So again, 94, this is peak grunge. Uh, The music not fitting in at all with what was currently popular, new music. But still, uh, there was an appetite there for nostalgia. It was number one for one week in the UK charts, and it was in the chart for 23 weeks. It was a number three album on the US Billboard charts and number one on the Canadian RPM charts. And as per chartmasters.org, the album has sold over 6.2 million physical copies around the world. So, Alan, let's jump into the next seven cuts that you wanted to talk about, starting off with a song that was a global number one. Speaking of number ones, this was a huge number one single in 1964, complete with guitar feedback, I Feel Fine.
baby's good to me You know she's happy as can be You know she said so Absolutely love it. Um, recreating the feedback off the top. Um, the, the, the but it's great. It's, you know, it's, it's one of my favorites of that era. Because I, I think if I was to pick favorite Beatles songs, it would have to go through eras. For sure. Um, and, and yeah, the distinctive thing is that, is that uh, the feedback... Uh, which they did manage to re- to recreate for this uh, on the the BBC version of it, uh, but yeah, fantastic song. Lennon wrote the riff for "I Feel Fine." You can hear on the session tapes apparently um, while they're working on eight days a week. Yeah, I read that. that that's really interesting, right? Huh? Yeah, um, he had it going. He said uh, he was just fiddling around with it. And to quote Lennon, uh, I told them I'd run a, write a song, especially for the riff. So they said, yeah, go away and do that, knowing that we'd almost finish the album Beatles for sale. Anyway, going into the studio one morning, I said to Ringo, I've written this song, but it's lousy. And we tried it, complete with the riff, and it sounded like an A-side. So we decided to release it just yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Lousy, <laughs> terrible song. <laughs> um, and the the, uh, the drums on "I Feel Fine" clearly inspired by Ray Charles. Uh, what I'd say. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely, yeah. 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 It, it just clicked into my head. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, and Lennon and Harrison said that the riff uh, for the song, the guitar riff, was inspired by "Watch Your Step." which was a 61 release written and performed by Bobby Parker and covered by the Beatles in concerts back in the early 60s. So uh, a lot of influences on this one. Now, the, the year they recorded A Hard Day's Night, an absolutely manic year for the Beatles. So that was 64. A movie, two albums, the standalone single, I Feel Fine, that we just talked about, Ed Sullivan, Break America, European Tour, UK Tours. Uh, a different type of of Manic For You in 2007 when you toured the UK, Finland, and <laughs> Moscow with Dave Bedini, a friend of the show, of the Rio Statics. Tell me about a night in an amazing bar at the Hotel Yokola in Yonsu, oh, Finland. Yonsu. You, oh, yeah, that was uh, where we um, we met the, uh, the pianist. Uh, I don't remember his... His last name, his first name is Kamal, um, from, I think it's maybe Azerbaijan, I think, originally. So this guy was a classically trained pianist who was, uh, had gone through the whole Russian system, the, uh, the Red Army Music School. Um, and uh, I suppose... And he told Dave and I this through an interpreter. Uh, we were sitting with him and he, he was telling us about how he had, after years of um, going through the, uh, the the Red Army system and being taken all over Russia to you know, entertain different the, the soldiers or workers in different places and, and sort of uh, backup uh ballet dancers there is an industrial accident 
and him and his ensemble are sent to the U- Ukraine. They have no idea what it is, and he has to entertain the troops and the workers that are uh, involved with the cleanup of uh, said quote unquote industrial accident. And one of his, they're told not to go outside. And one of the members of his ensemble, who was, I suppose, like a chronic insomniac or something, uh, broke, uh, just thought, I need to go for a walk. I'm going crazy. Went for a walk, became sick pretty quickly. They started to realize the flowers uh, that the ballerinas were given were dying. Uh, He started to realize that there's something up here. And... um, I'm not sure how he managed to do it, but he he told us he stole a, a jeep and drove to the Finnish border, and never came back. Wow, wow! But, now, uh, that ended up being Chernobyl, and everybody that was that he was the the dancers, the workers, the other musicians all died. Chernobyl '86, by the way, right? 1986. Yeah. 1986. Crazy. Well, so it, it wasn't a hard day's night, but that must have been a. Uh, I mean, we could probably do a whole podcast on stories from that tour, uh, UK, oh, yeah. Finland, yeah, that, Russia. That, that 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 night after hearing that story, we ended up just Dave and I and uh, Miko, who is uh, the guy who put on the tour, just ended up hitting a bunch of different bars and you and Sue drinking this terrible liqueur called yellow vina uh don't ever drink it it <laughs> tastes like kind of like uh tequila and uh roof tar <laughs> mixed together really bad tequila not the good stuff and and roof tar in a bad way <laughs> i think i read about it that it was originally made to uh give finnish soldiers uh um courage when they're fighting the russians and it's partially a petroleum product (laughs) (laughs) so we so we go to cut nine and uh the definitive beatles version of uh of the chuck berry song rock and roll music a fantastic cover I first heard it. Um, do you remember? Probably around '76, maybe when when it, there was commercials for the Beatles' rock and roll music uh, double vinyl record. That's when I first heard it. I heard it on over the television. I was begging my dad to get it for me. Um, I don't think he ever did. But <laughs> I uh, eventually, it's on Beatles for sale, so eventually got it. It's a great. Absolutely great cover. Now the version on uh, that you'll notice on live at the BBC. The biggest thing you notice for me is there's no piano part. Uh, yeah, and again because it was George Martin wasn't there. He played the piano on the on the the recording for Beatles for Sale. Um, but it uh, you really do miss the piano on it. I think. Yeah, I mean, I still kind of like the rawness, but I'm in. I mean, to to sort of to speak to that point, all of these when they were actually doing making the records, there were they were three or four track recordings, so there wasn't a lot of there wasn't a lot of overdubs anyway. Um, 
so yeah, I don't know. I I I still think that's pretty fantastic. I I, I like the version, but I I, I understand. Now now the just uh, the definitive version, the one that the Beatles did on Beatles for Sale. Great story around it. I, I don't know if you know this, but they were oh no, they, they were short on material. Uh, for Beatles for Sale, because as I mentioned earlier, they'd been just a little busy in 1964. Uh, and, and they were trying to grind out another album. And the days were getting short, and they had to get it done. Uh, so what they did on one of the last days of recording was they rattled off four cover versions, essentially from their early stage show. Uh, the last three in a row they did at the end of a nine-hour recording session. The three in a row at the end of the day were Everybody's Trying to Be My Baby, the Carl Perkins uh, song, yep. one take. Rock and Roll Music, Chuck Berry song, one take. And Words of Love, uh, their only recorded Buddy Holly cover, incidentally, took them three right. takes to do that. But they do that at the end of a nine-hour recording day. Bang them off. That's talent. It's absolute talent. And, um, you know, they. when you... I, have you... Have you seen that? Um, I forget what the book's called, but it's sort of, it's uh, kind of goes through every. It's a Mark Lewison book about everything that they that they did in one day. It goes chron you know chronologically through. Okay, you know April first, nineteen sixty three, went into the studio from you know ten in the morning till whatever. Uh, had lunch at twelve, came back, recorded a bunch of stuff, left at five, did a gig. Yeah. Back in the studio the next day. It, the work ethic is crazy. Yeah, it, it, I, I don't. It, it's incredible. I don't think you could get bands to do that now. I mean, I, I even you know, I'm not talking about even, but even back in my day, <laughs> you wouldn't have been able to convince a band to go. Okay, we've got a show tonight. After finishing recording that record, we have to go off and do a show. That would have just been nah. <laughs> well, I, I think I've got a story that will speak to that coming up a little bit later on. But th this particular version was recorded for a show called Saturday Session, and it was recorded on right. November 25th, uh, transmitted out a month later, uh, December 26th. Uh, but they likely would have selected this track along with Kansas City, Hey, 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 uh, to promote their new record, Beatles for Sale, which was right. you know had just come out in the UK for the Christmas market. So they were promoting that. But... Uh, a great performance, but again, you, you notice the, the lack of piano part in, the, in this particular version. Um, so we move on to cut 10. And uh, what, do you, what can you say about this song? Uh, great drum part, great yep. everything. Ticket to Ride. <laughs> an amazing song uh as you said great drums a uh, fantastic arrangement um you now live to mono <laughs> yeah right yeah the uh, extraordinary sound on the the original recording for help at the time you had the chiming clean guitar sound of yep. mccartney on who plays lead on this song uh yeah big tom toms 
Uh, yep. f- which was a huge sound for the time. Uh, and then Ringo's drum pattern, which which I hadn't picked on, uh, up on until I read it, but the, it's, it's a bit of a precursor to Tomorrow Never Knows. Very much so. Or Rain. Very much. Rain, yep. another one, uh, you know, but really, really heavy drum sounds. And to that, I mean, uh, I mean, Ringo's playing something you've expressed a few times you're a big fan of. You taught yourself to play the drums during <laughs> yeah. the pandemic. So tell me about that. Well, I think, uh, first of all, to, to address one of the with, with Ringo, um, he's left handed. And he's playing a right-handed kit, so his a lot of things that he's doing is he he, he quite likely wasn't even aware of it when he started because you you know he didn't have YouTube how-to videos or anything. So a lot of his what he ends up doing is he's just he's he's a left-handed drummer playing a right-handed kit. So um, it's just he, his take is is slightly different. Even if he's trying to mimic somebody, his take is always going to be slightly different. His dominant hand is always going to is not going to change. It's normally you have your your dominant hand. Your in this in my case, my right hand on my hi hat. His right hand is on the snare, or sorry, his right hand is 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 his is not dominant hand. So his left hand is on the snare so it, it it'd be very it'd be interesting i'd like to i should switch that up i should switch my kid up sometime and try to play the other way that'd be really weird oh yeah my brain is already doing weird things thinking about that well um, this this version was recorded on may the 26th uh 1965 so it was one of the last sessions that they did for the bbc and it was for a show called the beatles invite you to take a ticket to ride and then yeah. they were promoting their new movie help that was yeah. coming out a couple of months later and that they so they did uh, a bunch of songs including this one but uh talk to me a bit more about ringo uh I think he was the perfect man for the perfect um, bandmate for for them. I mean, he he always lay. All of his parts are groovy. You you, you know they make you as a uh, you know want to shake, make you want to dance, and he uh, he seldom takes over the song. He seldom he plays he plays the right part. As later on in the 60s, I think, with, um, I suppose, starting with Keith Moon uh, and then Mitch Mitchell, and this will sound horrible, but I think Mitch Mitchell wrecked a whole bunch of Hendrix songs. So <laughs> I, I understand that it's, it's, a, it's a completely different uh, headspace, but Ringo's whole thing was to keep it simple, solid, and come up with the the right part it wasn't about him he always served the song yep and he had great energy too really high energy drummer too which is you know uh, overlooked well speaking of Ringo we go to cut 11 of the 14 that you've chosen (laughs) and uh, Matchbox uh, Beatles cover of uh, a Carl Perkins tune I'm sitting here watching Matchbox holding my clothes Matchbox holding my clothes. Ain't got no matches, sure got a long way to go. Well, I'm an old boy and I'm 
I I picked Matchbox because uh, my friend uh, Peter Case, who used to be in a band called the Plimsolls, and um, was a, a really big influence on me when I first started to play acoustic guitar shows. Peter Case had a cover of this song on one of his records uh, called Peter Case Sings Like Hell. Um, and uh, he he goes back to, uh, I, I think, I forget the original. I might have it written down somewhere here. There's a, another version, lyrically, a very similar version of that song. I Again, I'd heard a bootleg of Ringo doing it before. And um, I, I yeah, I really like that tune. Uh, the BBC version is a little rougher than the recorded version. Uh, the, the vocals slightly distorted in places, which gives it that you know that that kind of feel. No George Martin piano accompaniment again, uh, yeah. which the studio version had. Um, the, the Beatles had they'd done it for a while, but they didn't actually do a studio version of the song for record until June the first, nineteen sixty four. Yeah, so it was like a about a year later before they committed it to vinyl uh, to go on the Long Tall Sally uh, yeah. EP. We talked about their work ethic earlier. This is the story I was going to tell you about. So this version was that you hear in the live at the BBC was recorded on July the 10th, 1963 for an episode of Pop Go the Beatles. So they recorded it. They were in the midst of playing six consecutive nights with two shows per night in Margate. So after the Margate before, yeah. Well, as have I. Uh, Nice cathedral there, Margate Cathedral. Yeah. Uh, So after the shows on the ninth, which is right in the middle of this run, they get up first thing on the morning of the tenth. They drive into London from Kent, which is where Margate is. Yeah. Yeah. Into BBC Studio Two at Aeolian Hall. They record two episodes of Pop Go the Beatles. Then they drive back to Margate to play two more shows that night. Ah, crazy. Just <laughs> yeah, unheard of. And it, uh, I'm not sure if that was before they had the um they had the motorways going. So it would have taken quite a long time. If the if they didn't have like a well highway, I suppose, um, at the time, it would have probably taken four or five hours each way if it wasn't if they didn't have a the the uh, a highway in. Uh, early stage versions of the song, it was a John song. He sang the lead right. vocal, so this yeah. was this was one that they gave to uh, you know to did, Ringo. Did, did Pete Best sing it as well at one point? I think I read that somewhere too, but then again, I might be inventing things. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was released as a single in North America. Uh, really? But yeah, it was. Uh, it uh, it climbed to number six on the Chum chart in Canada, so it was a bit of a a bit of a yeah. hit in North America, um, and a bit of a filler track on the the Long Tall Sally EP in the UK. So, if I can just take a moment here to ask a favor of you, dear listener, if uh, you are enjoying this podcast, and I hope you are, I hope you're enjoying the whole series, uh, can you please make a donation to support the podcast and the production costs of the podcast? Just head to the website, romicast.com, and click on the Support the Walrus button right there on the front page. It's right there at the bottom. Give it a click. Uh, I will happily take your donation and give you a shout-out in the next episode. So thanks for that. And while you're at RomyCast.com, if you're looking, you can navigate to the page Hire Paul. I do a bunch of things, but one thing I'd like to tell you about is... 
podcast production, promotional podcast production. If you've ever thought of a promotional podcast for your next album release, tour, book, art exhibition, I'm your guy. I'm an experienced podcast producer who loves the arts and will work with you to produce a podcast that will showcase your talent. If you're interested, you can get in touch via the website, and we'll go from there. And also at the website, you can find information on each and every episode of the Walrus Was Paul series. The best way to not miss an episode is to hit the subscribe button wherever it is you get your podcasts, and you will be notified whenever a new episode drops. So let's move on to the next cut on our tour of the Beatles live at the BBC, and it's another cover version, a little Richard tune, Oh. Oh, my soul, and they really blow the doors off this one. Oh, my soul, well, baby, 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 don't you know my love is true? Honey, 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 say, get up off that money. I love, 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 love. Oh, my soul, well, Yeah, I just thought we, that we needed to represent some Little Richard in here as well. Because especially, I think McCartney was a huge uh, Little Richard fan. And they played one of their first big shows opening for Little Richard, too, I think. Well, here's a quote from McCartney. Uh, huge Little Richard fan. He said, quote, I could do Little Richard's voice, which is a wild horse screaming thing. It's like an out-of-body yeah. experience. You have to leave your current sensibilities and go about a foot above your head to sing it. You have to actually go outside of yourself. It's funny little trick and when you find it it's very interesting a lot of people were fans of little richard so i used to sing his stuff paul mccartney said that in the many years from now book by uh, by barry miles um this did, did, did you know the hendrix played with little richard for a while i did not yeah, there's like really interesting footage of both him and uh, and Billy Cox. We played with in Band of Gypsies, backing up different uh, like Wilson Pickett and um, and well, Hendrix. Anyway, with Little Richard, but Little Richard, uh, I think, didn't like uh, Hendrix uh, competing with him on stage. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, this cut on the uh, on the BBC Live, uh, some great drumming by Ringo, yes. like just yeah. drives it along. Uh, and McCartney with the, just a blistering vocal performance. They rip through this sucker in a minute 37. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a minute 37. <laughs> yeah, no, it's song. amazing. <laughs> it, it's, uh, I mean, talk about energy. Um, it just, it you really feel it in this track for sure. Now, now I counted no fewer than six different producers who would have worked on all of these shows. Uh, if, if you're interested, right. there's, there's Bryant Marriott, Bernie Andrews, Terry Hennebury, uh, Ian Grant, Ron Belcher, and Keith Bateson. You worked as an engineer and a producer uh, yep. with, with, uh, at the old Chemical Sound Studio in Toronto. Uh, yep. What was it like doing sessions there? Oh, it was, it was fantastic. It was, um, I got the, uh, the, the, the my story with it was with it was I'd done a bunch of four track recording, you know, you know four track cassettes, it's all you know home recording stuff, and that ended up getting me uh, a assistant engineer job at Chemical. The Chemical 
was down an alleyway behind For Your Eyes Only, <laughs> the strip part. <laughs> um, so, you know, you'd see some interesting things on the back alley <laughs> once in a while late at night. But um, the uh, it was heated by a, wooden, a wood stove. So the first thing I did when I'd come to work in, from about November on was to chop wood. So uh, and it was heated by the, the wood stove and the old API mixing board, which gave off a lot of heat. So, it, yeah, kind of sucked in the summer. It got a bit warm. But, yeah, it was great. I, I ended up um, right off the top being an assistant on the Sloan record and some Blue Rodeo sessions, even uh, uh, Cowboy Junkies uh record and then i ended up taking over uh a rio statics record um and to learn the ropes daryl who owned it at the time uh suggested i pick up uh, a, a project and steve uh stanley who was a friend of mine at the time i knew he was sort of chomping at the bit to to make a record so i thought okay let's let's make a record there and and we did, and uh, yeah, I was, I was very proud of that record, and it was a lot of fun. We a lot of late night sessions, so a lot of the time you'd go in there when who was ever there in the day had gone home. So we'd, you'd be kicking, showing up at ten eleven, and going until you know ten eleven the next day. <laughs> that that so. record you're talking about uh, for those of you who are fans of the podcast and have heard Stephen Stanley, uh, he's been on a couple episodes and I've referred to it. Uh, that thin wild mercury, which is a it's a great record, um, hard to find these days. It's it's out of print. Um, you can find it I think on Bandcamp, uh, but great record and you were the engineer and, and co-producer on that with Steven, yeah. right? Yeah, it was a, that was a really good, um, really good experience, a lot of fun. So we go to cut 13 of the 14 you've chosen and slow down. Slow Down because uh, I used to cover it. Um, for all of my early bands, I ended up covering it. Originally, I, I copied the Jams version. Do you know you know the Jams, uh, the Jam at all? They, they do a, a version of it on their record in the city. Sounds like early Beatles. Um, 
but yeah, I love the tune. And then, um, like, I, 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 I can probably still play it for you. You know, I mean, I, I, I can still remember when I've had a few beers in me, and somebody says, "Play a Beatles song." I'll play that song, hey. even though it's a Larry Williams song. But <laughs> yeah, it's a cover of a Larry Williams tune, uh, Twenty Four Bar Blues, uh, and uh, released as a single in 1958. A rhythm and blues hit that influenced what was then the growing rock and roll movement of the time. It sounds like a fun song to play. Oh yeah, it's really fun. Yeah. Uh, part of the Beatles live act, uh, 60 through 62. Uh, the version on live at the BBC was recorded on July 16th, 63. Um, quite a day's work that day. Uh, they rehearsed oh. and recorded three episodes of Pop Go the Beatles. Oh, gosh. At the BBC wow. pair. Well, again, work some context. So th- that session on February the 11th, 1963, that I talked about earlier. So they recorded 10 tracks in one day for the Please Please Me uh, LP, right? And, th- and that's quite rightly one of the legendary recording sessions in oh, pop music history, it. right? Yeah. Well, so on this day, on this day, they taped 18 tracks in three sessions that went from 3 to 5.30, 6 to 8.30, 8.45 to 10.30. And yeah. one of them was slow down. So, again, yeah. those boys worked their asses off. Oh, they, they did. They did. Um, this version, to me, I think it's better than the studio recorded version. Um, the, the studio version kind of a ropey guitar solo and poor production. You can hear an edit. John Lennon fluffed some words. Um, It was clearly the end of the night, and they they wanted to get it done. But this version on Live at the BBC is probably better. I think it's better than the studio version. It's it's lit for sure, too, right? It's just just the the energy in it is amazing. Yeah. Uh, So we come to cut 14, and it's the the last track uh, of the 14 that you've chosen. single love me do the very first single what got to number 17 right yeah and then they were them and a lot of their their uh, the people that worked for them were like oh that's great okay That'll probably be the end of it. <laughs> Little did they know. Uh, they um, did. They, they did this song uh, eight times for the BBC. This is a version from July tenth, nineteen sixty three. Um, during the same session I talked about earlier, when they were doing the the residency at the Winter Gardens in Margate and drove back to to tape the shows and so on. Uh, they they pretty much replicate the record version here with you know Lennon with the harmonica. Yep. Uh, runs about you know I think the the single version is two twenty two. This runs about two and a half minutes um it's a you know a great song yep it is it is i'm not sure if ringo played on the studio version well he didn't play on the single right it was was it alan white or there was i know there was people uh i've heard different differing opinions well there were there were two versions released there is a version uh and it's easy to tell which is which the version with alan white has 
tambourine on it, and it's Ringo tapping on the tambourine. Right. Uh, so the version yes. with no yeah. tambourine is Ringo playing, and there are right. there were two versions. One was released as a single, and one was on the album. Right. Right. Uh, so, so kind of a weird one. And again, uh, this is a to John Lennon's recollection. Speaking shortly before his death in 1980, he says it's Paul's song. He wrote it when he was a teenager. I might have helped in the middle eight, but I couldn't swear to it. I do know he had the song around in Hamburg even way, way, way before we were songwriters. But then McCartney says, "Love Me Do" was completely co-written. It might have been my original idea, but some of them were really 50-50s, and I think this one was. So, <laughs> take your pick. Yeah. Different, different memories. Take, yeah, for sure. Take your pick. So, uh, I'll just tell you a bit about the cover art uh, before I, I, I let you uh, get on with your evening. But um, So, the photo of the Beatles is outside the BBC Paris studio. Uh, that's It's in London, despite the fact it's, it, they, it was called the Paris studio, but it was on 12 Regent Street in W1 in London, if you know the city. No longer a studio. Uh, and it was after their session there on April the 4th, 1963. And it was the great... Diesel Hoffman, who took a series of photos, making it look as though the Beatles were walking into the studio, and one of these photos was used on the cover of the album. And there was also, interestingly, I've never seen this, uh, but there was an 8mm film that was taken outside of the studio at the same time of the Beatles sort of larking about in the sidewalk, and it was taken by a guy named Kevin Neal, who was a member of the Carl Denver Trio, which was a band that was sharing the bill with them for this recording. And portions of that silent color footage were used in the promo video for Baby It's You, which was released oh, as a single right. from Live at the BBC uh, yeah, album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so what is your favorite Beatles album cover? Right away, I think Revolver. I have a lot of memories of just trying to figure it all out when I was a kid. I'm not sure which was the front and which was the back when I was uh, younger, because the the back could be a front cover too. Yes, yes. Where well, they're sitting in the uh, they're sitting in the studio. I think they're in looking, studio too with sunglasses, looking so yeah. cool, looking so cool. <laughs> oh yeah, looking so yeah. cool. Um, now, what about your favorite album cover? Period. Non Beatles. Uh, any album cover jump out at you? Electric Ladyland, uh, or uh, the the original um, Electric Ladyland. <laughs> I think that was. I just can't believe they had the balls to do that. Um, yeah, but um, quite likely uh, Band of Gypsies. I uh, again, I, I I'm actually not particularly aesthetic, and I just I suppose I I uh, would just. Um, would see a cover and just immediately associate it to the sounds, and you know what I mean. Like so, when I when I see Band of Gypsies, it's just, oh yeah, I light up. Same with Revolver, though. I mean, you could literally pick. You know, in an hour, I'll have completely changed my mind. <laughs> and, and how about your favorite, uh, your own? favorite album cover from your work either uh, either with the band or your one of your three solo albums or your new solo album that's coming out soon I think it would be uh, At War with the Elephants um, that was a picture that I I found uh, on the uh, on the interweb um, 
I had misread or misheard the uh, the name of a documentary about elephants encroaching on or people encroaching on elephant habitat in India, and I completely misheard it. And I thought, "War of the Elephants" that'd be a good name for a record. And then, so I was looking for some pictures of of elephants. Like originally, the idea of how um, Alexander the Great used elephants basically as tanks in in his early conquests of Persia. Um, then I saw this picture, and it was basically it's a picture of uh, the Barman Bailey Circus. They do it every year where they take the elephants over uh, through the, uh, I think it's through the Brooklyn Tunnel to uh, to Manhattan. Or the, I'm not sure what the tunnel, tunnel's called, but it looks like, to me, it looked like elephants, the picture looks like elephants going over an international border. And I thought that was a pretty interesting, pretty cool picture. So yeah, I would say that would be my favorite of my stuff. So, Alan, what are your uh, what are your sort of final takeaways and thoughts? We've been uh, talking about this this album and uh, lots of great stuff for uh, the last hour and a half or so. What do you what do you take away from our conversation and the album and uh, Beatles live at the BBC? Well, I love talking to any anybody who's a massive Beatles fan, as I am, um, and I think the the massive influence the Beatles. I, had on culture and music and, and, and enduring uh, influence they have on they've had on music. I think that would be what I would, as well as personally on myself. You know, it's uh, they they changed everything, and I, despite what the naysayers might think, I mean, ma- imagine being in 1966 and hearing on the radio. On, on the BBC or, or North American radio, hearing like Herman's Hermits and stuff like that. And then you throw on Tomorrow Never Knows. Just imagine how strange that would be. And it's, that's even before all the, the crazy stuff of Sgt. Pepper's. It's, they were just, uh, you know, they, they changed it all. And it's it's time in history that I don't think will ever be really repeated in the same way. And that it, they were, you know, working class kids with, the, you know, the, I don't know if those opportunities are open for anymore for for people to sort of have the time the to put together uh, a, an artistic project such as that. Well, Alan, thank you so much for the generosity of your time. It's been great. Oh, thanks for having me. So I would like to ask you what you think about The Beatles Live at the BBC. Have you listened to it lately? I hope, uh, if nothing else, I hope that this podcast sends people back to listen to some albums that maybe they haven't listened to in a while or ever. If you have, uh, what are your thoughts on the album? What are your thoughts on our thoughts? I'd love to hear from you. You can leave a comment on the podcast episode page, which you'll find on my website, romicast.com. Each episode has its own page, and you can comment at the bottom of the page on that particular episode. Uh, you can also interact on Twitter or Instagram. The handle is Romanuk Paul. That's Romanuk Paul. Uh, best places to interact, Twitter, Instagram, or the webpage. There is also a Facebook page if you want to do a search for the Walrus Was Paul podcast page for those of you who are Facebook inclined. And do be sure to visit Alan Piggins at his website, alanpiggins.com. 
Morganfield.com. Lots of information there about him, his music, his former band, The Morganfields, as well as his upcoming new record, which should be out in the next few months. It's all there at alanpiggins.com. Well, that is it for this edition of the Walrus Was Paul podcast. Thanks for listening. So long for now. Do you ever get tired of